flooding is becoming more, more frequent. It's not a matter of if, it's going to be a matter of when. series of uh, events that we've had this year, uh, basically uh, in an effort to increase our interaction uh, and awareness uh, with the community about flooding and what we're doing in with our flooding strategy. Tonight we're going to have uh, several different issues, uh, one of which is uh, gives us great opportunity to give you some sense of what uh, Hurricane Sandy as a storm, what that was like in comparison of others. Uh, Jim Reddick, our Director of Emergency Preparedness, uh, will give an overview of that and give you some context of how we worked. Uh, out of our emergency operations uh, center and how we uh, handled this storm, uh, uh, probably one of the mo most prepared that we prepared that we ever were and how we operated as a team uh, in the emergency operations center. Uh, Lori Crouch is going to highlight, uh, she's our uh, public relations director, she's going to highlight some of the new uh, communication uh, tools that we have to keep, help keep uh, residents informed uh, when we have power and the ability to get to some of that and then when we don't as well. Uh, and then Bobby Tahan, one of our senior planners, is going to give an update to proposals that we have uh, coming to City Council uh, related to flood insurance and zoning ordinance updates. And then Jim Reddick will come back if anyone is interested in the potential for assistance for hazard mitigation grants, which typically are, are in the form of home elevation is typically the type of uh, assistance that you can get there, then Jim will give an overview of what that program is about. Certainly with Hurricane Sandy, it wasn't just the city doing one thing and, and our private sector partners doing another. It was public, private, not-for-profit, higher education, and military, all of us working in a whole community approach to disaster response. Compared to our friends up in the Northeast, we dodged a huge bullet. So it was, if nothing else, it was a great full-scale exercise for us where we deployed our assets uh, given the forecast uh, that we were, the, the forecasted flooding and winds that we were supposed to get. Uh, fortunately, we didn't, but again, it, it allowed us to work through a lot of kinks and as many successes as we have identified through Hurricane Sandy, we can multiply that three or four times by the lessons learned so we can do it better the next time. This is just a brief timeline of, of Hurricane Sandy, obviously uh, forming out uh, below the islands, uh, be below the Bahamas and J Jamaica. It's really not so much on our radar. We're, we're keeping an eye on it. We know that it's a, there's an active storm out there, but typically those storms don't make a northward approach across the islands, across Jamaica, and work its way up into the, up into the Atlantic. But this one did. So uh, October 26th, we had our local, well, I'm sorry, back on the 25th, that's when we really started to, to pay attention to the storm. We had our first EOC briefing, uh, brought a lot of our partners together to talk about the what-if scenarios. If this storm becomes a threat to us, are we prepared to respond as we need to? So we did that. All the departments were working through those what-if scenarios, you know, making sure that their plans were in sync and folks were on standby. And then on the 26th, we had our local declaration of emergency. And one thing that that does for us, it's our trigger to, to, to document all the costs that we have in response and recovery of the storm. So when you hear about FEMA coming in after the fact and us being able to get reimbursed a lot of the, the expenditures that we paid for, that's what that trigger is for us. And at that point, we have to document everything because if we don't document it, and, and you'll see with the mitigation grants, if there's no documentation, then according to FEMA, it never happened, and then we lose a lot of that reimbursable uh, support that we would need. So about the same time, uh, the governor made his state declaration as well, which again, same thing, it deploys state assets and allows us to, to, to ramp up uh, before the storm hits. On the 27th, we activated what we call a JIC, a Joint Information Center. 
and it's PIOs from various departments, various agencies. Uh, we had, again, city agencies, we had Norfolk Public Schools, we had uh, North, Norfolk Health District uh, PIOs working together, so we had a consistent message working out of the Joint Information Center, which is co-located next to the Emergency Operations Center. Um, we activated the Emergency Operations Center that evening uh, for in, in logistical support for the shelters that we also opened up that evening. And then in the, we also opened up parking, parking safe havens, which I hope everyone noticed that in the past, the parking safe havens have always been in city garages in downtown. Not so in this case. We had over 20 of them. Thanks to Old Dominion University, thanks to Blackhawk by the airport, uh, and Norfolk Public Schools, we had over 20 parking safe havens throughout the, throughout the city. And then in the morning of the 28th, we went to a full activation. So all the folks that you would expect in the Emergency Operations Center, police, fire, human services, public works, public utilities, uh, human services, recreation, parks, and open space, and a lot of our uh, liaison, our partners as well. So, we, you know, we pretty much hunkered down when the storm came. We did have, uh, like I said, we had four shelters. One of them was our first ever pet shelter. Uh, on the 29th, uh, once, once the, the storm had come and gone, we consolidated those three shelters into one, uh, really starting to demobilize, as you, can, as you can see, on the October 30th. And then November 1st was the termination of that local declaration. Uh, just to give you a, a highlight of where Sandy is compared to other storms that we have experienced here in Norfolk, as you can see, it certainly wasn't to the level of the, the Ash Wednesday storm, Hurricane Irene or Isabel, but it definitely was the level to where uh, we, we would definitely want to pay attention. Local official observations from the National Weather Service, they look at the uh, International Airport and the air station, so you can see that uh, the, the, the flooding that we got, in a lot of areas it was over six, uh, six feet, but you can see, I'm sorry, six inches. But at the International Airport, uh, 5.68, and then over at Norfolk Air Station, 4.3 inches of, of water, precipitation flooding. And then we had gusts, certainly at 50, 46 miles per hour plus. I know we had gusts into the 60s, as you uh, very well may have felt at your homes. Uh, like I said at the beginning, these are the folks that you would normally expect to see in the Emergency Operations Center. So a lot of city agencies, all of us working together in concert, hopefully. Um, and, and, and we, did this, we did this very well, I believe. I, I think that as, a, as an internal group, we really came together as a team, got to know each other's capabilities, got to know each other a lot better, and, and how we can plan and work together. I also want to show you all the other folks with whom we are working for this disaster. Well, quote, unquote, disaster for us. Again, public, private, not-for-profit, higher education, military, all working together. Again, we use a program called WebUC. It's a web-based crisis management program where we can share and document information, which at any given time, we had over 150 people logged on to that, over 50 organizations sharing information. The bridge tunnels, VDOT giving us information on bridge tunnel closures. Um, the schools talking about uh, access and availability of their schools for sheltering. The shelter folks, human services, providing information on these shelters are open at these times. Uh, these are when we're going to consolidate. These are when we're going to close. All that information, everything that we would need to know, we're able to share through a program called WebUC, along with other communication capabilities that we have. The last slide kind of looks like herding cats, but there is an organizational structure that we use that we've adopted to be eligible for Homeland Security Emergency Management Grant Funds. We have to adopt the NIMS and the Incident Command System. NIMS is a National Incident Management System. ICS is the Incident Command System, which is what the feds expect. If they ever come down here, when the cavalry comes down here to, to help us out, they expect to fall into this structure. And that's exactly what we use. So Mr. Jones, our city manager, has the overall authority to make all the decisions. So we do our best to provide him with all the different options. This is what we're facing. These are the consequences of the options. And then you know, we make the decisions that way. But you can see there's four sections, planning, operations, logistics, and finance. 
Everyone is familiar with operations. That's the sexiest piece. That's the blood. That's the sirens. That's the flooding. That's what always makes the news. So we have that. We, we, we do that, and we do that well. Planning, for the first time in our EOC, we had a planning cell. So while the folks in operations are focused on the now, the planning folks are looking at that next operational period, that next 12 to 24 hours. What is it that we need to accomplish, and what goals and objectives do we need to meet to make sure that we're on top of the storm and being proactive instead of reactive? Logistics, we had a few logistical needs and worked through that, but that's, they're responsible for getting us our stuff, whether it's through other departments, whether it's for neighboring localities or, or through the state, that's who handles those logistics and then the finance, making sure that we're tracking all the costs, everything that we do in a response and recovery of that incident. And then all of our liaisons, again, and those liaisons, they're off to the side just for this, for the, for this organizational chart, but they're embedded in these different structures. And, and if you see ESS, Excuse me, ESF stands for Emergency Support Function. There's a, a federal plan, the National Response Framework, which is broken down by emergency support functions. ESF-1 is transportation, ESF-2 is communication, ESF-3 is public works and engineering, four, firefighting, five, emergency management, all the way down the line. So we take that. We want to be consistent with the state and feds in our planning efforts. So we took what they did in the National Response Framework and what the state did with their emergency operation plan. So at, while we have our local emergency planning committee that meets monthly, we also meet by emergency support functions. So again, all the different sectors and levels of government with the same mission. So ESF-3, Public Works and Engineering, obviously we would have our Public Works, Public Utilities, we'd have SIPSA, HRSD, we'd have all the partners in the community that respond to that particular emergency support function and we'd plan together. Again, building those relationships. To show you how it works, in that WebUC system that we have, that web-based crisis management program, we have something called a battle rhythm board, which just almost serves as a calendar, counting down when the next, uh, when the next event's going to take place. So we know that we're asking for situation reports at this date and time. We're going to have an EUC briefing at this date and time. We expect high tide at, you know, at this peak at this date and time. Everything, so everyone who has access to our WebUC knows exactly what's going on and when. So we're all on the same sheet of music and we can participate in those same EUC briefings. So in that battle rhythm board, we would ask for situation reports and unit logs. Again, folks who have no idea what ICS is, the incident command system I just showed you, bought into that system and made it work well. We had, we had principals at high schools that served as our shelters filling out ICS forms that, again, they've never seen before, but they did it right. It went to our plan section. And based on that information, we were able to develop our incident action plan for that next operational period, which meant we could all work from the same sheet of music. So we were using NIMS and ICS because we had our planning section. We used the IAP, the incident action plan, uh, used the 214s for the position logs. We also worked with emergency support functions because that's how we have our relationships, but that's also how we have to do our reporting to the state. So we did that, then we'd have our emergency operations center briefing, making sure that everyone was on, on target with what we're doing. We developed the incident action plan with the goals and objectives, and then post it back to WebEUC so everyone has that information and can use it to base their decisions on the same information that we were. So again, it, it, full circle, working with our community partners, getting information from them, sharing information with them, making sure that we're truly a comprehensive, Norfolk-specific response to disasters instead of everyone going off in different directions. Felita? This is a couple uh, snapshots of WebUC. So this one on the upper right is called Significant Events. So me as an emergency manager or John Kiefer from Public Works or, or any of our partners 
have the ability to post a significant event. So otherwise, if I just keep it in my log, it's almost like a ship's log. I just want to keep track of things that are going down in my lane, making sure that I'm tracking all that. But if something happens within my sphere of influence and I want to share that with someone else, I'm going to check a box to significant events. It's going to go up. And that screen is up in our emergency operations center at all times. So if you post something there, everyone's going to see it and everyone's going to be aware of it. This is a file library right here. So all of our EOC briefings, all the information that we got from the Virginia Department of Emergency Management, the National Weather Service, Dominion Virginia Power, all that information was stored there. So again, we're not making decisions in a silo. We're making decisions, sharing with others, collaborating with others, and also giving them the same ammunition that they need to make their decisions as well. I uh, want to make mention of the medical uh, special needs registry that we have. If you didn't know, we do have a registry. It's a regional registry where folks can log on or call the, HR, the Hampton Roads Planning District Commission or, or fill out a hard copy form. We can make sure that you get those and let us know who's in our community that, that, may, that may need additional assistance. So uh, depending on the medical needs, all that information is in the registry. And then what we did this time, and we had over 150, 150 people in the registry, we made a request to the Department of Public Health, Norfolk office, for their Medical Reserve Corps volunteers. And med Medical Reserve Corps volunteers are folks with a medical background, obviously, or even students at ODU or Norfolk State uh, who can assist us with these types of things. So what they did was they came to our Mercy Operations Center before the arrival of the storm, called every one of those folks from Norfolk on the registry and made sure that they knew about the storm coming, what their plan was, did they know where the shelters were going to be, how they could be better prepared for, the, for landfall. And then afterwards, they called them all again to make sure that they were okay. So it really worked very well for us. The, the number's manageable. I hope we get the, the number a whole lot bigger. 150 folks in Norfolk, we know there's so many more. So we would look to you and other folks and other agencies and the faith community and the private sector to help us. Parking safe havens, again, uh, not just the city garages in downtown like we talked about earlier. Huge thanks to Norfolk Public Schools, the 20 schools that they gave us, their parking lots, Black Hawk over by... Um, the airport, Old Dominion University after the Monarchs beat Delaware that week. Uh, it, it went really well. Again, there's so many opportunities throughout the entire city for folks to park uh, on higher ground. So again, this is something that we continue to build on, but hopefully this is something that you can see maximizing the efforts of the capabilities that we have in the community, public, private, uh, and, 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 and higher education as well. This is one thing, one of the requests that we made to the state. We knew that we were going to experience flooding and we knew to what level we expected some of that flooding. So. We, made, we thought it best that we're going to request a resources, which is only a couple blocks down from our emergency operations center. The first of excuse me, the first of the 111th field artillery unit um, have high water vehicles, and they have a lot of young soldiers uh, anxious and, and willing to help us out. So we have to make the request to the state's emergency excuse me, emergency operations center, which we did. Uh, we understood and we looked through and talked through all the logistical and financial issues, which to us there were none the state was going to cover the cost for that resource request. So there was essentially nothing for us to lose. So we went through that process. Again, full-scale exercise. We've never done this before. We made the request. We had talked with Major Jones, who's the officer in charge down there, and, and, and learned about the capabilities. We knew they had the capabilities. We had the relationship, and they helped us out in other ways, too. Uh, so we made the request. We went through the formal process, which is the bureaucratic process of requesting it to the state. But then there's the unofficial way where, Major Jones, this is what we're doing. You know, can you look on your end and make sure that we can meet up and, and get the resources that we need? And we did. We got two high water vehicles and two water rescue teams who did, in fact, make water rescues, one on the way to the hospital. They pulled out a family out of a car to get them to the hospital. The other thing that they did, and, and, and a lot of you have never been to our emergency operations center, but I'll tell you right now, it's not the Hilton. It's not the holiday. It's not even the Motel 6. We have folks that, that try to, to sleep in, in hallways and offices, and it's really cramped quarters. 
And as hectic as the emergency operations center is, when it's time to re relax, you need to get out of there. And that's what, something that they also provided was space in their armory. With, you know, we set up some cots in there, got folks out of there. They were able to shower, able to rest out of that hectic environment and then come back in later for their shift. Cleta? Four shelters uh, for Hurricane Sandy, uh, three of them schools and one of them a rec center. Again, one of them was a pet-friendly shelter where we had five pets, which is not much, but it's, it's, it's a start. And, you know, it's something that we've never had before and it's something that we're going to continue to build on. So from that standpoint, logistically, it went well. We had the volunteers, we had the managers show up and they put it together and did it the way it was supposed to be if, as if we were going to have 50 pets. So it worked really well. And again, thanks to, to Norfolk Public Schools for their, for their support in, in providing the shelters. Something else that we, oh, and not only providing the shelters, they're providing the meals at all the shelters. And they posted a, a school bus, an accessible school bus at each shelter in case anyone had that transportation dependency. They needed help getting to that shelter. They were automatically dispatched and brought to the shelter. Uh, something that we did differently here, though, if you ever, how many of us are familiar with alpha personnel, beta personnel, or, I mean, a lot of us use them on the public and private sector side. Although I usually say alpha, one, alpha personnel and alpha wannabe because you're probably going to get called up. But we've always relied on beta personnel to provide shelter assistance in the shelters. And it's, to my knowledge, it's always been kind of an ambiguous order. You may get called to work at maybe these different shelters under this super, it, it, it really wasn't clear, but this time, what, what, what Steve Hawks, the director of, of, of human services did, he made a recommendation with all the directors buying into it that departments would be specifically assigned to different shelters, which meant the folks that are working the shelters are working with folks with whom they're familiar, they work with on a day-to-day -day basis, and also accountable to their department heads. So again, it worked well. We had everyone show up. We had, didn't, didn't have any issues with, you know, again, when you're trying to call beta personnel to come in, Caller ID sometimes plays a, you know, plays a part in that. So we didn't, we didn't have to struggle with that. We got the folks that we needed and, and again, lessons learned and best practices. The last thing I'll talk about is Nixle, and I know Lori Crouch will talk about that. Excellent way to keep in touch with you during an incident, but, and, and I'll, I'll hold off, and I don't want to steal Lori's thunder, but think about ways that we can better communicate with you, and likewise, you be able to give us information so we can have that communication flow during an incident. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Lori now. I'm going to go over a little bit of what we use in Norfolk to communicate with residents and the media and a little bit about how I go about doing that um, and then a little bit about how we use these tools um, during Hurricane Sandy. So basically Norfolk um, recognizes that residents use a variety of tools to receive information, how you get your news, how you get information, TV, radio, smartphones, social media. Well, we've also taken a strategy to use a wide variety of tools to share information. We have a website, we use TV48, uh, we use the local TV, radio, print media. Um, in August of 2011, we launched our Facebook and Twitter pages. We use these same tools when we deal with emergencies. So for the city website, which the address is there, um, in an emergency like we saw with Hurricane Sandy, that site was switched over and it went to an emergency preparedness site where we had tips, we had flooding maps, we had shelter information. Um, and we also, I wanted to provide for you the flooding website. That has a wonderful array of information as far as flood zones, maps, um, what we're doing right now as far as what uh, Ron said about our strategy with prepare, um, our, our, our uh, flooding strategy, and great other information there, uh, presentations, um, things like there that you can find. Um, we also use TV48, and in the case of Hurricane Sandy, we started running crawls on the bottom of the screen um, with information as well. 
I have a great relationship with the local TV uh, and print and uh, radio stations. So it's very easy for me to give them a call, to tell them what's going on, and to share that to them. We had a constant flow of press releases going to them and a lot of phone calls before Sandy, during Sandy, and after Sandy. Um, but I can't stress enough that for you all to have a battery-operated radio. Because if you do lose power, we have great partnerships with the radio stations here. The TV stations have great partnerships with the radio stations. So if they go off the air, they go on the radio. So if you have one, please keep your batteries fresh. If you don't have one, go out and um, get one. Uh, social media is another way that we um, were use, we used uh, during Hurricane Sandy. Our Facebook page and our Twitter page. Our Facebook page um, feeds directly to our Twitter page. So whatever I post on Facebook goes right to Twitter. Um, and it's been a great tool for us to use for residents to ask us questions and also post pictures. And we get that information. We can turn around and share it with, as Jim said, the wide network of the EOC. I sit in the Joint Information Center, so if I get a picture or we get a flooded road or, hey, can somebody help me, I will shoot that information out onto the Web EOC. But it's also been interesting for me to watch how residents will jump in and say, well, if you turn here or you go here or I'm over here and it's dry here, and you can watch folks get information off of each other and help each other. We also go door to door. Uh, during Hurricane Sandy, um, Members of the police department and the fire department did go out in certain portions of um, East Ocean View and Willoughby and went door to door telling them, do you see the water outside the door? The next high tide, which we were expecting Monday morning, is going to be worse. Do you need to leave? They were prepared to take folks now. No one took them up on the offer, but that's a way we communicate. We went door to door. We also use um, our CERT volunteers. And then the city has established through our Neighbors Building Neighborhoods Initiative a great relationship with our civic League. So I encourage you, if you have a civic league in your neighborhood, please get involved with those folks. Um, they, uh, we are working a lot with them, sharing information, especially with the civic league presidents about what's going on. They send out an email blast to those folks. So we try to do the best that we can to keep our residents um, in the loop. Um, Norfolk Alert. Norfolk Alert is going away. Um, we found, and with Jim's arrival, that um, Norfolk Alert is outdated and it takes way too long to reach you. So by the time, you know, we can say, hey, there's flooding going outside your door, you're like, hey, it's gone and my car's dry. Um, and you get that alert. So what we've rolled out during Hurricane Sandy is Nixol. It is immediate. Jim can send a message. I can send a message. We can send it ver uh, via email. We can send it just a text message. You can do both. It is an extremely fast, immediate, and when you're in a situation that you need to know something right now, this is an effective tool for us to use. Go ahead. Um, the registration is very easy. You can do it one of two ways. You can go to the website or you can simply text your zip code to 888-7777. And that's how you do and we take care of the rest. So I don't know if anyone had an opportunity on the table outside the door. Um, Fleeta helped me put this flyer together. It has all this information. It also has useful city phone numbers, um, but it also has the registration for Nixle, and we're really moving to this. Um, the software for uh, Norfolk Alert is gonna go away. 
um, and this is immediate. Um, it will be used for public safety. We're, not, we're getting out of the business of reporting the weather, so you won't get any weather reports from us. But if there's something going on in your neighborhood, whether it's storm-related, whether the streets um, had to be blocked for a hazmat situation, that's how we can use it. And we can send it out very specific. Right, Jim? We can send it specifically to a zip code. We can send it a blast. So it allows us a lot of flexibility in how we communicate and who, we're, who we are communicating to. Uh, I'm Bobby Tahan. I'm a senior planner with the Department of Planning. And uh, I'll be talking with you today about some changes that have happened to, the flood in, to some of the flood insurance regulations and to some of the zoning ordinance updates that we're planning on doing to try to help offset those changes. Um, the purpose of this presentation is really just to inform everybody, or inform this group, of changes that happened to the National Flood Insurance Program um, that were adopted on, in July by the President, uh, and the steps that the city is taking to address those proposed changes. Um, essentially what's going to happen is that flood insurance is going to go up. And the city can take steps uh, by doing certain things to make sure that we can try to offset that by being a part of what's called the community rating system, which we are currently a part of now, which affords uh, citizens of Norfolk an opportunity to get a reduction in your flood insurance rate based on the initiatives that the city is taking in order to protect the, the citizens and, and the city's infrastructure. Now, we don't need any background. We just came off of Sandy and a nor'easter that followed it, so we know that it floods. Flooding is becoming more, more frequent. It's not a matter of if, it's going to be a matter of when. Is the high tide going to be high enough this time? You know, is Llewellyn going to be closed? Yeah, it'll be closed. You know, is, you know, are certain streets going to flood? Yes, they'll flood. Um, just as a, some general background, just so that we can just summarize, but again, we're just coming off of uh, Sandy, and we understand the devastation that, have ha that has happened with that. You know, there's a national trend of more than 1,000 declared flood events over the past 50 years, and a majority of those flood events, uh, a majority of the declared disasters in general, which include tornadoes, earthquakes, have been floods. Again, NFIPs is short for the National Flood Insurance Program. It is essentially what offers or what backs the uh, uh, insurance, uh, insurance folks uh, to offer flood insurance to people. Okay? The federal government actually subsidizes flood insurance, so our tax dollars are, are, are allowing uh, for reduced rates for people to have flood insurance. Um, again, in July, a bill has been passed for, to reduce the federal exposure to the flood insurance claims. You know, over the past few years, and, and really starting with Katrina, um, really causing this cascading effect where it has been difficult or the National Flood Insurance Program is, is no longer able to fund itself. Uh, it's not there. So the federal government has to take, uh, take measures in order to reduce any of their exposure to having to keep paying out without it being, without it funding itself. Um, you know, in general, based on what was passed in July, the National Flood Insurance Program has the ability, it has, and it's been kind of sparse from what we've been hearing, um, but they have the ability to say you can raise the rates uh, on flood insurance. Um, whether, they, whether there's a trigger or whether there's not, they can just raise it at a certain percentage each year. Some of the examples I take, and this comes from the uh, summary for those of you that were able to get it. This is um, the Bigger Waters Flood Insurance Reform Act of 2012. There was a summary that I had laid out on the table up front. Um, if you didn't happen to get that, I'm more than welcome to give you my card. I can send it to you or get it to you. Um, for some houses that were considered what are called pre-firm structures, that, in other words, they were built before we ever adopted any flood insurance rate map, um, which would be in 1977, is that correct, Lenny? Um, 
those structures may see it, and again, I say may because it's not, it hasn't been fully put out there, but those structures uh, that are currently enjoying a reduced rate because they were in place, they were built to the requirements at the time that they were constructed, which means there were no flood maps at the time, um, they are going to end up seeing, they could see a 25% increase per year in their flood insurance rates until it reach the, reaches the actual rate of flood insurance. Now, what is the actual rate of flood insurance? I don't really know when you think about how many claims have happened. You know, anytime, let, let's think about a regular claim. Let's say there's some freak hailstorm and people claim the hail damage. You know, your insurance goes up, okay? Insurance, flood insurance hasn't gone up uh, that much in comparison to the amount of claims that have happened. So in order to go up and to actually meet the actuary rates is going to be very significant, okay? Um, some of these preform homes that are going to automatically see it will end up being secondary residences, uh, properties that are considered severe repetitive losses. That means they've made multiple claims uh, that meet a certain benchmark of the cost versus the, uh, the cost of the house. Um, businesses or anybody that gets a new policy, so if you purchase house or if you forget to continue your policy. So essentially this is going to affect everyone. Also, when new maps are adopted, and there is an initiative now with uh, FEMA uh, with the mapping updating process, that they're going to update flood maps every five years. As a, as a locality that participates in, in the National Flood Insurance Program, which is how we can even allow for anybody to get insurance. So if we back out, then no one gets insurance in the flood zone if we back out of the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, you know, we, will get, we are going to get new maps. And, once those maps are adopted, if someone was not in a flood zone that required flood insurance before, and then they end up in one, they are, the National Flood Insurance Program will be permitted to increase their rates over a five-year period until it reached the actuary rates. What we're doing now is we are participating in what's called the community rating system. The community rating system, for those of you that are familiar with it or, or that are not, is, is an opportunity that the city has in order to reduce the, the impact of these to offset this, these impacts by doing certain things by either having higher standard requirements or by having um, by by doing certain things that we're doing a flood wall that we're currently researching um, notifications that we're doing now that we're trying to do planning these things out and doing those can pr proceed to get people a reduced rate so what we're hoping to do as a city is that we're we're evaluate we are taking the time to be proactive now Okay. We were already part of this system. We already currently uh, was considered a class nine in the community rating system. So we are currently getting our citizens that, are, that have flood insurance a 5% reduction in their flood insurance at this moment because of the things that the city is doing. Uh, we're currently working to continue to improve that class as, in other words, get lower in order to get a higher reduction for the citizens of Norfolk. Uh, doing that, hopefully we can try to somewhat offset the changes that, that will be coming because the National Flood Insurance Program is not solvent. It is, they, are, they will have to raise the rates. It's going to happen. Uh, some of the activities, those of you that are a part of this committee for a long time, um, we have some of, the, uh, um, some of the design professionals that are here in the audience now um, that are doing some of these studies for us. Um, you know, the certification of the downtown flood wall. For those of you that uh, Jim was talking about, in, right there, that's the flood wall. You may not have ever thought that was the flood wall, but that is the flood wall. Okay? Um, you know, we have uh, structural studies that are going on that we're doing um, and wetlands restoration, which can also, if we do the right things and we do and we put it in the format that the National Flood Insurance, Pro 
the community rating system wants to see, we should be able to get credit for. Okay. Um, what we're currently working to do also, or what we've done working with our uh, internal GIS staff to the planning department, is that we've taken the GIS data that we have and we have improved it. This is a current flood insurance rate map. For those of you that have not seen one before, um, if you live near here or if you can try to, can you pick your house out in those dots? <laughs> we've taken that data and we've, we've changed it. Okay? We've not really changed it, I shouldn't say changed it. We have improved upon it so that it, it can be seen. We've actually taken it one step further and, and taken real estate data where they've actually outlined the houses and we've outlined the houses to even make it stand out even more. And that data is actually available. It's at the planning department. We have it currently as an internal document because we're currently testing it out to make sure everything is correct. But this is how we can, this is how we can do better determinations. What things can we see? Um, everything that's in a special flood hazard area, you know, red, red would be a special flood hazard area. So by looking at this map, you can see that the streets are low and the houses are high. That yellow part is where the houses are higher. So, you know, we're trying to make it easier so that it can be seen. Um, some of the other things that we're trying to do that can continue to not only, again, like I said, not just to reduce the rate of flood insurance, but to protect the citizens uh, and to protect construction and other things throughout the city is to uh, increase the, the number of certified floodplain managers uh, in the city. Uh, having the people with the, with the knowledge to understand how to do that. Currently there's two of us, it's myself and Mr. Newcomb, who's the zoning administrator and the floodplain manager for the city. Um, we're looking to, to increase that number, to have more people involved in understanding fully understanding what they're implementing so that when you get someone that's sitting in front of you when you're doing an addition to your house or when you have a repair that they can actually tell you exactly those rules instead of sending you to somebody else. And if we actually were able to work with the, with the Department of Conservation and Recreation to get that training that is required before you do the test to be certified in the city of, of Norfolk in February. So we're currently working towards getting, to getting that taken care of. And we're also trying to work on documenting. Okay, documenting the paperwork we get. Okay, people come in and get permits all the time. People come in and share information with us. We just need to do a better job of documenting it, putting it in a place where it can be accessible not only to city staff, but also to the public if we're allowed to give it to you. Uh, some of the things that we're currently working on that, we're, that actually is not no longer potential, I think we're actually hitting, hitting this uh, pretty good right now, is working with uh, Jim's staff and working with Lori and communications and actually uh, getting it in public works to to create a warning and response system, letting people know what's happening. You know, for those of us that uh, are in, that are city employees, we've been um, kindly say pinged by certain people saying that we may not have done the most that we should have been able to do to notify people. Uh, we're working on it. We're doing the best we can. We're using Nixle. We have the flood website. You know, there are other options that we have that we're currently exploring. And part of that, part of using those things is also to document how we're going to use those things so that when it happens, it's not just clear to us, it's also clear to the public. Okay. Um, currently right now, the, we have adopted a, a regional hazard mitigation plan. If you look in the Bigger Waters uh, Reform Act, uh, this mitigation plan can also substitute for our floodplain management plan that we, uh, uh, that we're, that we can have in order to reduce, again, reduce some of the um, cost to our citizens. Um, but we, we've adopted this plan. This, this is a whole, a whole plan that uh, covers all the hazards that are in the city, not just flooding, but also um, attacks and other things like that. But that's part of what we're working with. And uh, Public Works is working with, with their uh, group to finish up the stormwater management plan. Okay. Um, again, I was discussing about, discussing about putting together the uh, floodplain management plan. I'm currently working with uh, uh, Latoya Vaughn and Jim Reddick's uh, staff to kind of put this together and 
set up those clear lines on when certain things need to be taken care of. Set up clear expectations, not only for city staff but for, for the public so that they know, they understand what to expect from us as city employees. How are we going to inform you better? How are we going to let you know what's going on? Uh, this is currently what we're doing with our, with our current zoning regulations and this is where this, this is going to kind of hit home a little bit. Currently, uh, the city of Norfolk requires, uh, of course, we require to meet the, the construction standards for the, uh, that's required in the building code for, for properties located in a flood zone. Uh, are in a special flood hazard area. Um, there are certain requirements to that. Um, there's a certain elevation height where the finished floor where you walk into the door has to be a certain height. Um, the city of Norfolk has actually adopted previously um, a, what's called a one-foot freeboard, which requires not only just the minimum height, which is required by the flood insurance rate maps, but an additional foot of freeboard to, to, call, to allow for clearance, just in case. Okay? Like I said, flooding is going to happen. Okay? It's going to happen. It's happening more frequently. You know, who's, who's, who's been in Norfolk their whole life? Okay. Who's been in Norfolk for more than, for, for more than half your life? Okay. I mean, it's, it, it is, for those of you that are here, I, I grew up in Virginia Beach. Okay. Even from when I moved into my house with my wife, which is, you know, with, with, which is like three blocks from her parents' house, but that's beside the point. But <laughs> who, who themselves are lifetime Norfolkians. Um, the frequency of that flooding happening, even between, I shouldn't say five years, wow, it's actually been longer than that, the eight years that I've been in that house, um, it's been more frequent, even in that eight year span. It's just eight years. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to, uh, to my in-laws, to my father-in-law, and it's, it's, even, it's even more significant. You can see it happen. Okay. And so, you know, taking, taking those regulations and, and applying that one foot is, is a good first step, but we're also looking to do other things. You know, what we're also looking to do in, in our current zoning regulations, Mr. Newcomb and I and the planning department uh, in conjunction with the building code office and a few of the other stakeholders that have a say in some of the requirements um, that are for construction within a flood zone is we're looking to improve the zoning ordinance now. Require more, okay? Be prepared for more. Okay? Not only does that prepare us and construct us in a way that is going to be effective, but it is also going to help that rating again. That rating, I don't want to go back to money because that's not really the important part other than the protection of, of life safety, of life and, and property. But, um, you know, that rating can go down again. We'll be developing uh, coastal A zone regulations. We'll be receiving new maps in about three years, which will delineate the uh, coastal zones. Uh, and we will have to, as part of the community racism, they strongly encourage the locality to adopt these regulations. In other words, you get a lot of points if you do it, and we're just going to go ahead and do it. Okay? It doesn't require, from what we can tell so far, from any of the guidance we've gotten from the state, that it doesn't require much more than what we think we will we'll be requiring anyway. And the most significant portion that we're looking to do is to increase that freeboard from one foot to two feet. Okay? So instead of being one foot higher than the minimum standard, we're looking to require a two foot higher than the minimum standard. Um, for those of you that are looking at this right now, the finished floor would be uh, the lowest floor, um, which is where you essentially would walk into the front door uh, if it was a house that was built currently right now. Um, where that front door entrance is, instead of it being just where the minimum requirement is, we would make it two feet higher to allow for anything else, any unknown circumstance that we don't see. Okay? 
some flood event, some rain event, something that happens that causes flooding will be accommodated for. Okay? Uh, this, again, further protection for our citizens, further protection for, for property, uh, but this is a significant piece um, to this because this doesn't just require new houses, this requires new construction. So this says if you do an addition to your house, you might be two feet higher than your existing house. And then if you do an addition that's more than half the cost of your house, your whole house has to go up two feet. Okay, this, this is very significant and we're, we are taking our time to be very deliberate about doing these changes. We're, we're reviewing them very closely, trying our best to, to, to put them together. And Mr. Newcomb and I are looking to go out to the Civic Leagues and go out to the community to make sure that you understand what is going to be expected. Um, for those of you that are here, you understand, you're already in the know that flooding's going to happen. You're not in denial about it like some people are. Um, so this may not hit as hard for some of you. But for a lot of other people, this can be very significant. Um, like I said, imagine a two-foot difference in an addition to your house. And that's, you know, but again, the way the regulations are written, it's new construction. That means if you do an addition, if you do anything like that, it needs to meet the requirements. And this is what we're looking to go to. And in conclusion, you know, we're, we're considered a leader nationally in addressing flooding issues. You know, um, maybe internally, maybe to some people that are, that are in the city, we, we may not be doing what they believe is enough, but we're on the front line, okay? We're on the front line. You know, for those of you that last week were listening to the radio, we were on NPR um, and public radio. Okay? We've been on PBS with the mayor uh, discussing flooding issues. We're in the front, and we're doing our best to continue to be in front of it and to be, instead of being behind it or, unfortunately, under it. You know, you know, we're, we're looking to take additional actions to reduce the exposure to flood events. Okay? We're not just talking about raising your house. We're talking about trying to keep the water out. Uh, John Kiefer and, his, and, and Public Works and his group is, is looking at structural solutions to try to find ways to protect the city. You know, we, we have the largest Navy base on the East Coast. We're, we're looking to protect assets that are important to the United States uh, and important to us locally. Uh, and we need to do the best we can to address those. And I believe uh, Ron's going to talk about those things, uh, some, some updates on that. And we'll continue to work on increasing our community rating so that we can offset some of those, those anticipated costs. It won't, be, it won't fully offset the, those costs, but we can, at least, and we can at least offset some of them and do the best we can in order to protect the city. How many business owners in here or anyone responsible for business continuity on the private sector side? Okay, that's one thing that Bobby had mentioned that, that could be a cost savings to you is our mitigation plan. Bobby had mentioned our hazard mitigation plan, and I know as part of the business continuity plan, the BCPs, you have to have a HIRA, a hazard identification risk assessment. Like he said, that's been done. It's been done for Norfolk. It's been done for all the south side. And that's something I can give to you. That's something you can access, access on our website, but something I can send to you for incorporation into your own plan. You don't have to hire another contractor to do it. We, we paid enough money, God knows, and we brought a lot of the folks, the right folks together from all the localities uh, to make sure that we had the best uh, vulnerability assessments, hazard identifications, uh, and goals and objectives to meet those. So, again, that's something I'm offering you. That's a cost savings, and you can incorporate into your plans uh, and also make sure that we're working from the same sheet of music in terms of hazards. Um, what I'll talk about now is the hazard mitigation plans, and, and I think I'll be able to address the issue of prioritization too on how, how we determine who would get first, uh, first grab at these mitigation programs. Well, first of all, I, a lot of the presentations I do, folks know that there are FEMA programs out there, but I think a lot of folks think that it's only available after a declared event. 
it's true and not true. There, there's different programs. There are some programs that are available year-round annually on a competitive basis. And there's some, there's one in particular, the Hazard Mitigation Grant Program, which is offered after a declared event. So we just found out that, you know, with, with, with Sandy being a declared event, all the, all the uh, localities in the Commonwealth are able to apply for these Hazard Mitigation Grant Programs. Um, the difference is the amount of money available for that particular grant is based on the amount of public assistance which is provided. So we don't know what that number is. I know for Irene, I think it was $2 million throughout the entire Commonwealth. So there's not a whole lot that we could do with that, but we're certainly going to try to get it. Uh, and we're going to see what we can get for, for Hurricane Sandy. So historically, um, again, four annual programs, three of them are, are related to flood issues. Focusing on repetitive loss and severe repetitive loss structures. Again, something else that Bobby had said is, you know, insurance rates are going to go up, including those that are severe repetitive loss properties. Well, I'll tell you, if you're a severe repetitive loss property, I hope we know who you are. And if not, please let us know who you are because you would meet the benefit cost analysis. You would meet that criteria to take advantage of these programs to be elevated because once you get your home elevated, then your insurance rate's going to drop because you're no longer that in, in, in that much of a threat. Um, so we're looking at flood prone structures, uh, there's some money for planning and, and, um, and other hazards. And over the last five years, there hasn't been that many. There's been 24 properties that have been elevated in Norfolk, which is at 3.5 million. Um, but I'm telling you now, we have eight that are in the works right now, eight that have been approved from FEMA, uh, and we're going to continue. Um, where's LaToya? I know she's trying to hide. That's LaToya Vaughn. She's, she's in my shop now whose job is to continuously research and pursue mitigation grant opportunities for homes and businesses. We have an idea of who's out there based on the claims data that we've gotten from the flood insurance program. And that really prioritizes who, who's, who's going to meet the, the, the eligibility to get those grants. So uh, you may get a letter from us. And if you don't, contact us and we'll let you know. We can run the numbers. It's all about meeting the benefit cost analysis. FEMA wants to know that for every dollar they're spending now, they're going to save in the future. So I, I tell folks, and I don't want to, I don't try to bash FEMA. I think they, they do a good enough job on their own. Um, but the program isn't so much about the homeowner as much as it is about saving money in the insurance. So they want, obviously, when, the, when you file claims, they have to pay out money for the insurance. Uh, which is money out of their out of their pocket. So they want to make sure that they spend money now to prevent those claims in the future. So it's it's again, you could the challenge is, and we'll talk about later, is that documentation. If you've experienced damages, you've experienced flooding, but didn't file claims because, like me, I don't want I don't want my insurance claims to go or my, my premiums to go up. So I'm just going to cover it out of pocket. Well, when you do that, then you don't have the documentation that FEMA looks for to prove that you're eligible and you're, in fact, in need because the insurance program hasn't been impacted by your claims or lack thereof. Um, so, Flita? Uh, the grants, there was, there was one, actually, they, they've done some adjusting with the latest uh, legislation that came out for the flood insurance program. There was a separate program for RFC, which is repetitive flood claim, and one separate one for SRL, so the severe repetitive loss properties. Has anyone gotten any letters from a flood insurance company or flood insurance program saying that you're an RFC or an SRL property? Okay, so you may be eligible for these, but what they're doing is they're they're not canceling. They're taking these two programs and incorporating it into just one umbrella flood mitigation assistance program where they're going to have $90 million annually competitive available to elevate properties or whatever the mitigation grants are. So 
that's what we're going to continuously do. We're going to look and identify who needs those funds so we can get the funds to elevate the properties. Now, I know one of the arguments sometimes is why do taxpayers have to pay for folks to elevate their homes? My response to that is my job as an emergency manager is to do my best to get those funds here because if we don't get them here in Norfolk, they're definitely going to go somewhere else. So we want to do everything we can to get the folks the help they needed, the businesses that the help they need to get their, their homes elevated. So that's what we're going to continuously pursue. So the flood mitigation assistance program is the one that's annual and it's competitive. And then the other one is the hazard mitigation grant program, which is based on a, a, federal declar a federally declared event. What the heck is RFC and SRL? These are the quick definitions for repetitive flood claim and severe repetitive loss. And I'll, I'll just let you look at those real quick. So there's different criteria to, to fall under these uh, different categories, which again are falling under that flood mitigation assistance grant. So if you are an RFC or an SRL, then you're probably in high probability eligible for these grant programs with SRL rising to the top because those are based on documentation, based on the claims, the claims data are the most vulnerable, the most severely repetitive properties uh, here in Norfolk. Now ICC, anyone familiar with ICC? And for some of this, I may defer to, to Mr. Newcomb in the back uh, to talk about this. Increased cost of compliance. This is totally separate. This is something as a holder of, of, uh, of flood insurance that you may be eligible for. If you meet the criteria, then you could get up to $30,000 to make repairs to your home. However, though, there's, there's a catch. When you do that, and again, it's, and again, I'll, I'll refer, defer to Lenny on some of this, as far as you know, meeting the substantially damaged definition for your home, which is 50% uh, over so many cost of, of occurrences. So you could get, you could apply for the increased cost of compliance, which is essentially a grant for up to $30,000 to make repairs to your home. The caveat to that is, and a lot of folks don't know this until after the fact, when you do that, you can use those ICC funds to address flooding issues, bringing, making those flood repairs to your home. But at the same time, you have to bring your entire home up to code, electric and everything else. And you can't use ICC funds for that. You can only use ICC funds for the flooding piece. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a caveat to that. So I want to make sure you guys are aware because there have been instances where folks wanted, demanded that substantially damaged designation for their home. They got it, and then they found out later on that that meant that they had to do, bring everything up to code, and they weren't prepared to do that. And once that letter is given, you, you can't take that back. So. Again, it's a benefit as long as you understand everything that goes along with it. And again, feel free to talk to me, Mr. Nuka, I'm in the back, Bobby from planning, and we'll be able to walk you through that to make sure that you're aware of any landmines that are, that are in the way that, that you may not otherwise know exist. Please. Okay, HMGP, the Hazard Mitigation Pro Grant Program. This one is not annually offered in, unless we have a federally declared event annually, which we seem to do. So. We have, there's a declaration. There's a declaration for Irene. There's a declaration for Sandy. Uh, so we're putting applications together so we can get funds uh, for HMGP and the FMA, the Flood Mitigation Assistance Grant, so we can bring those funds here. So it, it's just a matter of making sure that we have the right projects, uh, meeting the right criteria, and we're going to continuously pursue these. So um, there's information I can send you, and we have everyone's email address. If you signed in, we'll have your email address, and we can send you more information on this that gets down to the specifics. What does it mean to elevate? What, what, what goes along with that? Is my garage, does that count? Or, or anything else, it, there's really either you and or if you already know a contractor friend who, who does these types of things, there's documentation for them too that has the, the technical speak on what's eligible and what's not. So our mission, like I said, mine and, and Latoya's, is to continuously research and pursue these mitigation grants. 
for scheduled and unscheduled opportunities. You'll find a lot of localities apply for mitigation grants and for whatever reason it falls through. People lose interest or it wasn't, it wasn't done properly and so the, the state will get these funds back and rather than give them back to FEMA, they're gonna ask who, who can do something with these real quick in, in short order, turn it around. We're gonna have those applications ready to go. We're looking at, uh, Latoya and I are working on you know, 50, 60 homes, preparing them for applications for any, opportunity that, any opportunities that exist like that. Again, being proactive. If there's funds out there, Norfolk will take them. Here's our application, we're all set to go. We have the benefit cost analysis. We have all the information that we need. Here you go, and, and we're good to go. And then we'll communicate that with the homeowners. But then also, uh, the, the plan that, that Bobby had mentioned and, and I said was available for business continuity planning, there are goals and objectives for flood, pre, uh, flood preparations or flood protections and other things in that mitigation plan that we continuously work to, to address as well. Not just flooding. I mean, the, we're, we're vulnerable to hurricanes, we're vulnerable to winter storms, uh, and all, all down the line, we'll share that plan with you as far as all the hazards that we address and the, the mitigation action items. Real quick, here's a lot of the eligible activities that are associated with these mitigation uh, programs. Acquisitions, uh, not a popular one, uh, and relocations, obviously not either. Those are usually geared towards the more rural areas where homes and, and, and shacks are, are, are truly, literally on the water. Uh, so they can actually pick up the house, put it on a truck, and move it more inland, or, or again, acquire that property altogether. The biggest one that we look at is structural elevation and then different uh, flood-proofing uh, opportunities. There's one, uh, one, that, uh, one property that we're looking at, which, which Skip Stiles knows, knows about, uh, where elevation isn't, isn't an issue. I mean, they, they can't, it's not feasible to elevate that particular structure, but there's a flood-proofing measure that we can do with a membrane going around and underneath the property to protect it from flooding. So that's what we're trying to do. So there's different opportunities, not just mitigation, but other dry flood-proofing methods that we're really trying to do, um, thinking out of the box, again, for our homes and for our businesses. Fleeta? Ineligible activities. I'll just let you look at this one as well. So like for the third one, construction of new decks or porches. Well, if you already had an attached deck or porch to your home, then it's gonna be elevated. It's gonna be part of the project. But if you wanna develop one or create, uh, design and, and build one new, that's not gonna be eligible. If it's attached to the living structure, if your garage is physically attached to the structure, then it can be elevated. If it's not, then it's not a living space and the garage is gonna stay at that ground level. So again, I wanna make sure that everyone has realistic expectations of what it is to participate in these programs. For elevation, it is essentially the same house, just higher up and two feet above base flood elevation. Now FEMA would call the base flood elevation the 100 year flood, which is, is pretty darn confusing. So they changed it to the 1% chance of flooding each year, which isn't any less confusing. And it almost suggests that it, it, you have such a small possibility of getting flooded that, that you won't. So, that's what base flood elevation is. And again, I'll send a link that really, FEMA did a good job putting this video together explaining exactly what BFE, base flood elevation, what it is uh, for the flood insurance rate maps for elevation certificates and everything else that, that you can really sit down and watch. It's, it's almost at the sixth grade level, which I enjoyed because I could just sit there and say, oh, well, that, that does make sense. After all this time, I thought it meant something else. Um, so, all right, 24 properties up at this point in Norfolk, we're gonna, we're gonna slam that and get a lot more. We're gonna bring a lot more funds here and into the city. Uh, it is 100% voluntary up until the point where you sign the contract. Now you'll do a, a participation, a voluntary participation form. You sign that, it'll still go through the processes. We'll do the entire application. It'll go to the state, it'll go to the FEMA. But once we sit down with an approved application and we sit down with a contractor and then we sign that dotted line, that's when you're actually on the hook. 
And if you, if you withdraw after that point, then your flood insurance rates are going to go up um, and you'll lose your opportunity to elevate your, your property. Uh, local matches, what we tell folks, and, and we, when we do this, we almost under-promise and over-deliver. FEMA usually pays 75% of the cost to elevate. So as long as you meet the criteria, FEMA covers 75%. Sometimes the state kicks in more, uh, and sometimes, the, the, depending on the projects, it may be 100% cover. So you will at least get 75 cents on a dollar for, or for a particular project, assuming that you're eligible and, and meet the criteria and have the patience of working with three levels of government, which is the timeline piece. It could take up to a year for the whole application period. We could put it out, we can get the information, we could develop the application. And when we do that, we work closely with the Virginia Department of Emergency Management anyway. So when we, when we submit it to them, it should already be in sync with what they're expecting, what they're looking at, and what they project FEMA is gonna look for. So we have a great relationship. Again, Latoya is an all-star with this. She's written these grants before. She's, she's successfully written the grants before, got the funds, knows the process, and knows the folks at the state and federal level. So we can, we can do a good job pushing it through. But just again, for realistic expectations, it typically takes a year. Uh, and when FEMA gets it, and if there's another Sandy or another event, that may delay them even longer. So I just want to let you know you're working with three different levels of government. But if you have the patience and you're eligible, then it's actually a pretty good deal. You have, it's the same house, just higher. So this is the example I'll use. Just, you, you, got, you got center block underneath. Now there's improvements that you can make based on, uh, based on the project, and it would be a, essentially a separate contract with a contractor for any improvements, so long as it didn't slow down the process. But, um, but that's essentially what FEMA pays for, the same house, just higher up on block. Uh, nothing's necessarily replaced or restored or repaired unless uh, damage was done during the actual elevation, which they would be certified and insured contractors. So that, I mean, we would just work through that piece. But then again, the BCA, the benefit cost analysis, that's, that's the driver. That, it's not Norfolk saying you can't elevate. It's not the state saying you can't elevate. It's, the, it's FEMA's benefit cost analysis, which takes your claims data, takes all of your experiences and all your documentation and, is, and determines yes or no that you can participate, that you meet their BCA because they're going to save money in your future for every dollar they spend now. Again, realistic expectations. If you did want to get started, know ahead of time that an elevation, elevation certificate is really going to help us determine what the benefit cost analysis is. And that, could, that can cost, what, $100, $200 or something? Okay, yeah, so there's, there's an initial cost which would reflect you know, the, your commitment to the program, but that's, that's information that we would need, that FEMA needs, to determine where your ele first floor elevation is um, for, for the application. And then the city, we actually apply for the grant on behalf of the homeowner. They, it has to be a government agency, so we would submit applications you know, probably up to nine, ten homes per application and have as many as we can. But we have the process down. We, we know how we'll work it and we, it would just go to the state and then the feds and then back down to us. And then we work through the contractors. We put it out for bid following the, you know, the local laws in terms of uh, procurement and, and, and bidding and, and we work it out that way. Uh, I'll send you the link on how you can get an elevation certificate if you don't have one already. And in the case Latoya wasn't here, I was going to make sure you knew what she looked like. So. <laughs> yeah, these are the additional resources. For, for folks who really get into this from a technical perspective, there's more manuals and, and guidance documents from FEMA on here. Uh, a, a, some it'll put you to sleep, some it's actually pretty interesting on, on how it all works and, and the things that are eligible and things that aren't. So. Um, we have all kinds of resources from the homeowner, from the business owner, to the technical folks who do the contracting and, and developing and, and building for a living.